Yeah, but do you have, do you have a bachelor's degree yet? Uh, not yet. Yeah. Well, I never really okay. went to college. I just faked my resume. <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> All right. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by the CDC's new guidance. Do you guys, can one of you explain to me why they made the decision to tell people who are fully vaccinated that they can go outside without a mask? Why didn't they just say, we can go outside at this point without masks? I agree. It drives me crazy because the evidence was was, was crystal clear that, the, you know, outside transmission accounted for almost no you know, a negligible proportion of COVID-19 transmission. So why, you know, I, I, I sort of feel like they, they're they possibly in this situation where they've eventually realized the science has caught up to showing that outdoors transmission is, is not important to the overall pandemic. And perhaps they're using the occasion of the vaccines to sort of walk back that that policy, you know, and, and cite another reason for it. But I agree with you. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Never made any sense. <laughs> no, I, I wondered if there was something related to if we just suddenly sort of tell people you can go outside without a mask, maybe we reduce the motivation for people to get vaccines, or maybe we're just trying to send the signal that we're not done yet. So we still need to be somewhat cautious, but still, I just thought that the message is a bit confusing and would have been so much simpler if they had just said, you know, we're done with outdoor masking. Right. Not, yeah. I was going to add, not that we're not amazing podcasters with free associations, but Trevor Noah did a very funny riff on this this past week on his podcast, like the podcast version of his show. And it was pretty hilarious, but kind of talking about, you know, the CDC graphic with like the, the people in green, the people in yellow and the people in red, and then trying to follow your face across. And then that's my face, you know, anyway, some of the comedians did, did some, did some really hilarious work on the masking guidelines. So I think we are not alone in thinking it's a little bit unusual or a little yeah, bit inconsistent. Jess, I wish you hadn't brought that up because <laughs> Trevor Noah is our biggest competition <laughs> in this podcast. I know, I know. So we should what we shouldn't be plugging. We shouldn't be plugging. Yes, I mean he is an outstanding clinical epidemiologist, I agree. <laughs> he, he really is. But but I would say he's not as funny as we are. Oh no, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's true that it is not impossible to spread COVID-19 yep. out of doors yep. because there was a huge outbreak last spring in um, some, you know, small Bavarian town where they were having like a spring fest. I don't remember the name of the town anymore, but, you know, it, it involved hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of people crowding to this very cramped central square where there was tons of drinking and arm locking and singing, <laughs> um, you know, and everyone is like right out to each other. And then, of course, part of the tradition is kissing each other. Mm. And so that led to a massive outbreak, <clears throat> not surprisingly, but that is a that is not what we're talking about when you're you're like, should I wear a mask while riding my bike on the Esplanade? Mm. No. Right, right. <laughs> you don't need to do that. The only reason we're doing it is because it simplifies the etiquette of mask wearing. Exactly. We have right. a simple rule, wear a mask, right. don't wear a mask. But but I I, I kind of feel like, you know, this is one of those situations where I wish the, you know, the, the public health community had a little more respect for people and, and just been more transparent about this mm -hmm. and saying like, you know, we don't know yet whether outside transmission occurs. And since we learned that it didn't, we should just say that's the reason we're, we're lifting the mask mandate rather than coming up with this, if you've been vaccinated, you know, which still feels like, you know, 
you know, we, we are, we are, you know, overemphasizing the importance of, of outdoor transmission when it comes to, when it comes to COVID-19. So, you know, we could completely reject that entire recommendation as far as I'm concerned and just stop wearing masks out of doors unless you are in like a, like, you know, going to the Boston Marathon or something and everyone is just like, you know, right next to each other. Yep. But otherwise it seems. Yep. Masking absurd. only outdoors for large gatherings where people are close together would have been a, a much saner yeah. approach. Or like yeah. one of yep. my daughters had a birthday party this weekend where she invited four girls and they stayed masked per the preference of one of the moms, which was fine. But then I went outside at some point and all four of them were sitting in our hammock together, like looking mm -hmm. at one of their phones, like they were, you know, kind of curled up looking at something on one of their phones. And like, you know, they were all like head, 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 you know, they were like all mm -hmm. right next to each other. And so I, I think, you know, sometimes, especially young kids, like they do get in each other's head space and physical oh, yeah. space, and they can get really, really close, even though the risk still remains pretty low. And so I did see that. And I, I said, hmm, I wonder if it's kind of like the arm locking Bavarian dance. This is like, you know, <laughs> the, you know, sometimes sometimes people can when they're outside still get super close, even if it's still not high risk. Well, well, okay. I, I have a, an alternative for uh, public health proposal then, which is the an out and out <laughs> band of smell, uh, smartphones out of doors. <laughs> Hammocks I, I, and smartphones. <laughs> all right. Well, on that note, we have we have managed to uh, completely surpass the introduction here. So I, <laughs> I am. Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health here, as always, with Bavarian dancer Chris Gill. <laughs> Welcome, Chris. Hi, Matt. I'm here from the Department only of Global Health. Yep. And uh, Jess Liebler from the Department of Environmental Health. Welcome, Jess. Thank you. Hi. You see how we're all compartmentalized? <laughs> yes, Siloed. we are. Or departmentalized, I guess. Departmentalized. Um, so, so uh, gang, we've got another review. So we got another five-star rating. Wow. It's says, for all in health academia, if you teach in a university and participate in journal clubs, you absolutely have to listen to these. These Well, it says gentlemen, but of course, we are not just gentlemen. But uh, this one was from Kenya, Al Alumera. But anyway, that I thought that was pretty awesome. Nice. Okay, so now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our journal club, we're going to look at a study on a food intervention for undernourished children. It was sort of a pretty specific food intervention. We'll talk about that. In the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we'll talk about the importance of code review, which I got to tell you, is probably one of the biggest uh, changes we could all be making to our, our research. And then finally, we'll, we'll get into our amazing and amusing. So let's dive into segment one. So we're going to talk about an article that looked at a feeding intervention for malnourished children. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was entitled A Microbiota-Directed Food Intervention for Undernourished Children by first author Robert Chen of the Edison Family Center for Genome Sciences and Systems Biology and the Center for Gut Microbiome and Nutrition Research at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. But I will note that it was also done in collaboration with ICCDDRB, do I have? Did I say that right, Chris? I see. Yeah, I think I see DDRB. I see DDRB, the Diarrheal Disease Research Group in in Bangladesh that that Chris and I have a lot of familiarity with. There were uh, a couple of headlines from this one. I'll read you. So medical. Medical Express says for malnourished children, a new type of microbiome directed food boosts growth. Science Now says food supplements that alter gut bacteria could 
quote, cure malnutrition, which I thought was an interesting take. Mm. And Two Minute Medicine says microbiota directed food intervention showed benefits for undernourished children. So Jess, can you give us an overview of this study? I can. So this was a really interesting article. It was really one of the things I really liked about it. We'll talk about it in greater detail is that they they did this intervention study. We'll talk about that. And then they also used they did some biomarker analysis, both microbiota analysis and then protein plasma biomarker analysis to be able to probe a little bit deeper as to the mechanist, the mechanistic side and the biological side of what could be going on in the context of their intervention study. So I thought that whole design was kind of cool just up front. So just in framing the topic here, obviously malnutrition is a major global health problem um, with long-term consequences for children's health and development, specifically neurodevelopment and the development of different chronic diseases. And few interventions and treatments have proven to be effective specifically in reducing these longer-term sequelae of malnutrition in young children. Um, so this, this research team, prior to starting this intervention study, had done some research documenting differential gut microbiomes, both composition and diversity of the microbiomes, comparing children who were experiencing malnutrition to children in the same region. This was a study that was conducted in Bangladesh. We'll get to that in a second. So kind of comparing that there were differences in the microbiome associated with malnutrition compared to children who were not malnourished. And so the research question that they that initiated this study was can targeted manipulation of the gut microbiota improve growth among children with malnutrition. So this was a randomized intervention study. It involved 118 toddlers ages 12 to 18 months for a three month period in Dhaka, Bangladesh. And so there were 59 children in each arm of the study. So in the treatment arm, arm one of the study, the children were provided a microbiota-derived complementary food prototype, so a supplement that was basically cultured to include specific components, specific microbiological components, bacterial components that they were trying to colonize in these babies' guts. As I said, the, the actual microbiota composition of this supplement were grown up in mice that they then used to derive the microbiota, but were established by looking at these comparison studies between children with and without uh, malnutrition in DACA, comparing those children both in DACA, because there are known to be differences around the world regionally in microbiota composition. And so they chose a kind of a referent population of healthy children from this same community. So the treatment arm of this study, the kids were provided this microbiota supplement the second arm of the study, the children were provided kind of a more traditional food supplementary package that might be or, or kind of a food source, the standard treatment that was the kind of standard of care for children who were malnourished. And they used the following pattern in both groups. The children were given the supplement twice daily for three months. The first month, both of the dosings took place at the clinic. In the second month, one was in the home, one was at the clinic. The third month, both were at the home. Kind of also trying to look at the transition of, of if it mattered, the location in terms of both the engagement with the, with the supplement, teaching the parents how to do the supplement, and also if it changed the results in any way. If the children were dosed at the, 
at the home or in the clinic. And then at the end of the three-month intervention study, the children were followed for an additional month to see if there were any lasting benefits. The outcomes were uh, rates of change in weight for length, weight for age, length for age, and arm circumference. And interestingly, they used through the statistical analysis the z-score. Here, not the actual difference, they used the z-score, which, as you all recall from introductory statistics, is reflecting the difference from the mean in these measurements. Okay, So they were looking, as they go through the study, they're looking at the difference from the mean rather than the absolute value of these, these weight for length, weight for age um, scores, for example. It's the measure of the number of standard deviations above or below the mean. Okay, and so they calculated, they gathered the statistics, and they compared between baseline and three months and baseline and four months for these two groups. Additionally, they also measured the levels of approximately 5,000 plasma protein biomarkers in these children and the microbiota, the composition of the gut microbiota from fecal samples was measured every 10 days during the first month and then monthly afterwards to see how these, how both the plasma biomarkers and then also the composition of the gut microbiome changed over there study. Okay. So interestingly, as we jump to the results, the children in the microbiota supplement group had greater growth measured during this study in weight for length and weight for age, looking at the z-scores for weight for length and weight for, weight for age. And this effect persisted one month after the intervention, suggesting there might be some lasting effect of intervention at this age group. They did not see an effect on length for age and arm circumference. And children in the microbiota supplement group differentially expressed proteins and bacterial species in their gut microbiota associated with bone growth and neurodevelopment, which fits the mechanistic or biological framework that these authors are putting forward as to how the gut microbiome might affect bone development, for example, or might affect um, positive neurodevelopment. The proteins, interestingly, the proteins negatively correlated with growth were associated with immune activation and inflammatory cytokines, indicating that some of the developmental sequelae of malnutrition in children may be mediated by inflammatory pathways. I thought that was kind of interesting. And they also identified various amplicon sequences associated with the weight for length, z-score, which was one of their interesting findings. And they were, they did note that the gut microbiota composition of the children in the treatment group did match the composition they were going for in generating this microbiota supplement. And so it was paralleling the microbiota of the healthy children in DACA at the end of their study, the children who received this supplement. One of the interesting things they noted, just to conclude, is that the microbiome supplement was less calorically dense than the traditional food package, implying that there was something in the microbiota itself, not just in the caloric intake of this, of this treatment that could be benefiting growth in these children. Yeah, so uh, this was a really interesting one as, as I saw it. Chris, I wanna get your take, but before I do, I just want to point out what something that they note in the introduction, which I thought was really important, which is that they it's been estimated that the coronavirus pandemic will increase childhood mortality from wasting by more than 20%. So this becomes an even more important topic than usual in a lot of ways in light of the pandemic. And so it seems to me a really important one, and that's why we wanted to talk about it. Chris, I want to get your take, but I also want you to explain to me 
why it is that we are referring to this as a microbiota directed intervention, as opposed to, you know, an intervention that is attempting to change the microbiome. But when I read microbiota directed, I somehow assumed that the intervention itself was going to be tailored to each specific child based on their microbiome. So I don't know if you have thoughts on that, but if you have any explanation, I'd love it. But but give us your your take on this study. Sure. So to, to try to answer your question, and and I I actually am not entirely sure I quite understand what they meant by that in their title. But I what I think they meant is that they had I they had you know looking at the microbiomes from you know normal weight and underweight stunted or wasted children had identified a, a sort of a composition of microbiota taxa that is to say groups of organisms as, as opposed to single organisms that were generally associated with children who had you know sort of like you know healthy weights as opposed to those who who did not and so they they built this supplements you know microflora around what they thought would be you know the the compositions of a of a healthy ecosystem mm-hmm. so I, I think that's what they meant but they they're not entirely transparent about it so what I thought about this was I, I agree with you both I thought this was really kind of a fascinating study to put this in a little bit of, of context it, it has been known for a very long time that the microbiomes the intestinal microbiomes of you know, people with different disease states differ from those who are of you know of individuals who are healthy. And in the current case, it's clear that the the intestinal microflora differs between those who are underweight or stunted or wasted, as opposed to those who have normal weight and are not stunted or not wasted. But the, you know that totally makes sense because there can be all sorts of factors going on. And the big question in the microbiomics literature is is is, is like is this you know is the abnormal flora playing a role? in the the disease outcome in this case you know being underweight or stunted or wasted uh, or is this just a reflection of that disease state you know it's sort of an epiphenomenon but it's not part of the causal pathway it may re- you know represent some you know unidentified third force like perhaps these individuals have very poor immune function and because the immune system interacts with the microflora and but also has direct health effects perhaps you know they are both saying the same thing but you know changing the microflora would in that model would not necessarily improve the health state. Mm-hmm. And and so here what what I think is sort of is rather unusual about this this study is is that they're actually testing that hypothesis directly which is can they change the microflora and by doing so does it improve the, the you know the weight gain characteristics of their study population and, and I was really sort of impressed to see that it 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 did even though you know we're presented results that are, are are on a Z scale. So it's a little bit difficult to sort of figure out what they mean on an absolute scale. But the, nonetheless, the, you know, they were, they were, you know, impressive in terms of their response. And as Jessica noted, you know, this is not explained by one diet having more calories than the other. In fact, the, 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 the microbiota enhanced you know, supplement was slightly less calorific than the, than the regular supplement. I'll note in passing that they they don't mention that I saw what the regular supplement was, but but often what is used is something called Plumpy Nut, which is a mass-produced sort of health supplement for children with malnutrition, which is basically a, a sort of a very high-tech peanut butter. It's lots of nuts. It's not just necessarily peanuts, but it is often made of peanuts, you know, mixed with with lipids and sugars and vitamins. It tastes 
okay. I've tried it. I didn't enjoy it particularly compared with Skippy, but uh, you know, it wasn't bad. It is very sweet. So yeah, so those are those are some of my 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 main reactions to this. And I thought that their chain of evidence was kind of persuasive in that you know they showed that by giving this supplement that you know it did lead to a change in the the microbiome of these of these children who received the enhanced supplement and that that change also correlated with a change in protein expression towards uh, proteins that are more associated with growth as opposed to response to stress or inflammation. And so that also provided a, a further sort of hint to possible mechanism behind this. And then lastly, of course, was the, the fact that the, the weights improved selectively in the group that had received this, this supplement. So yeah, I was, I was intrigued and now I'd, I'd love to see this replicated and, and, and more research on this, uh, in this area. Yeah. Chris, you said you'd love to see this replicated. I have to say that when I read this, I was surprised by how little I had to sort of, I don't know, critique this study. I mean, it seems like things are, are pretty well done from what you can, you can get out of this. But I guess my my sort of the open questions to me were largely, number one, this is a small sample size study. So there were 59 kids per arm. Right. So, very small. you know, I'm not, you know, I, you know me, I'm never going to bet the bet the house on on 59 subjects per arm. Uh, number two is, are these differences meaningful differences? I suspect they are. But I couldn't really tell because I find Z-scores are really hard to interpret. So they said, for example, an extrapolation of between group differences of 0.011 per week and the change from baseline in the weight for length Z-score result in a gain of 0.57 over that in the RUSF group at one year. So, it so I'm going to interpret that roughly as a change in Z-score of a half unit or 0.6 of a unit, let's say, over a year, given that these kids are in the minus two to minus three range for, you know, weight for age and, and height for age and those things, you know, half a unit seems to me important, but I, I can't say for sure. So that was my second question. And then my third was... There are a lot of outcomes in a trial of only 59 kids. So you've got the sort of standard weight for age, height for age, you know, length for age, those, those sorts of measures. Then they get into these proteins analysis and they analyzed over 4,000 proteins. That's, you know, a lot of work to be done for a small number of subjects. So to me, the main issues were I just want to see this replicated and I want to see that this really holds up when you do it on a larger scale. But from what I can see, it's all sort of pointing in the right direction. And that seems to me important because, you know, when it comes to these kind of big public health problems like, you know, uh, diarrheal disease and, and malnutrition, you know, there's sort of some basic approaches that we've developed in the, you know, long time ago, you know, if kids are malnourished, we want to give them specific nutritional uh, supplements. If kids are dehydrated, we want to give them oral rehydration therapy, but there haven't been a lot of major innovations on those in quite a long time. And so to see this seems to me to be a step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Jess, any, any thoughts from you on, you know, sort of how you grade this study? Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you that as the reader of this study, the Z score 
throughout made it difficult to figure out if these changes were meaningful in the relation. I mean, maybe any improvement is meaningful in the context of children who are malnourished. But I, I would have loved to have seen a translation to the absolute values at some point in the discussion so we could really get a sense of what we were talking about. That would have helped me as the reader, someone who doesn't work in malnutrition research, to be able to kind of really get a sense as to the meaning or the interpretation of their statistical work. I agree with you about the small samples. I, I was interested, and I know Chris has done some work about kind of tra trajectory of microbiota in very young children. And I was what I was interested in is not something that this study could answer directly, but for future work, kind of the idea of if you're really looking to to, to prevent those longer term sequelae that could be, say they are gut microbiome mediated, what is the timing of the intervention that affects those longer term consequences? And would does a three month intervention trial do it? Does it have to be consistent? Does the supplement need to be kind of consistent through, you know, through the first five years of life, for example, in order to really colonize the gut with what might be the, you know, this kind of healthy characteristics of the microbiome. So I was, I was interested in kind of the long-term effect, which was beyond what the study was trying to do, but that's where I was left at the end. Like, okay, well, does their gut microbiome just to revert back, they stop the treatment, does it just revert back? And then if there was any benefit, it's erased, or is this, are they continuing to supplement these, these children? And if what is the, what is, what, what is the next step of this research? Yeah, I totally, totally agree with you. And so I guess what we're all saying is we're impressed by this study, but that, you know, it's, it's sort of just a beginning step and we want to see what's next and see this replicated. Since, since none of us found any sort of major things to complain about, which seems not very much our, our style, <laughs> I thought I would, would complain about something esoteric in a sense <laughs> okay. uh, with this study, which is one thing that disappointed me about this study was the abstract. And I should say, admitting totally upfront, I write terrible abstracts. So for me to critique somebody else's abstract is, is a, you know, a little disingenuous, but, but I particularly was, was displeased by it because, you know, of course the authors can write whatever they want, but usually the journals look at the abstract and there's specific things that they want in there. So, so two things that struck me as, as missing from the abstract. The first is, if you look at their results in the abstract, there really aren't any. There are no numeric results at all. They just say receipt of this particular, you know, feeding uh, MDCF2 is the name of their microbiota-derived food intervention, was linked to the magnitude of change in levels of 70 plasma proteins, and there was benefit of MDCF2 on growth over the course of the study. But like, how much? you know, confidence intervals, anything. There's no numeric information in there. There is a p-value in the in the the protein analysis, but that's it, which kind of surprised me, particularly again, since a small sample size study. The second thing is in the methods, you can read the title of the study and the methods of the study and have no idea that this was a randomized trial. There's mm -hmm. no, no yeah. mention mm -hmm. of that design, it, so much so that I, I had to go back and check it because I there was a part of me that thought maybe I was misremembering and this wasn't a trial, but it, it was a trial, of course. So they did. You were absolutely right. Mm -hmm. I, I I ran into the same the same thing. Here is like like is there a control arm here? They don't say in the abstract. 
Yeah, I mean, again, this is the like nitpicking here, but you know, given that for many people the the abstract is all they'll ever read, it does seem to me these were important details to have left out. But since right. I I picked on something esoteric, then I figured I'd end with something that I thought was pretty cool, which is, did you look at the first author? So right under the title, did you look uh-huh. at the first Ever? author's qualification? Oh, BS. Yeah. Mm. We got a first author study of a New England Journal paper by a first author with a with a bachelor's of science. I think that's fantastic. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. 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 I think he I, I I suspect he's a graduate student though. It sort of implied that that he was uh he was in a degree program. So maybe he's a he's a PhD student or something. Yeah, maybe, but either way, I just thought that was pretty awesome. Yeah, no, I just got rejected by the New England Journal of Medicine just a couple days ago. So I'm I'm still not in that club. Yeah, but so do, do you, right, well done, do you, Chen. Do you have a bachelor's degree yet? Uh, not yet. Well, I never really went to college. I just faked my resume. (laughs) Okay, then. (laughs) All right. So let's then move on to our second segment where we're going to talk about code review, something that I think, you know, is pretty important, I think, in the grand scheme of doing reproducible research. And it was motivated by a paper that was in the American Journal of Epidemiology. And I will just note once again that I am on the editorial board of the American Journal of Epidemiology for complete disclosure, but total conflict of interest, Matt. Total conflict of interest. You need to recuse yourself. I I will recuse myself, but I did think um, that this uh, is the greatest paper that has ever been written, and it has nothing to do with. <laughs> this is a paper by uh, Anusha Babel, Scott Deal, and Maria Glymore, two of those who I I know reasonably well, but I I still I thought this was just a, a nice paper. It was called Code Review as a Simple Trick to Enhance Reproducibility, Accelerate Learning, and Improve the Quality of Your Research Team. And I, we don't need to go through this because I think that it is, you know, fairly self-evident, the point that they're trying to make, which is that when we do research, we have to write code to do our statistical analysis. It is very easy to make mistakes in statistical analysis. And those could be small errors that lead to big problems, like you've miscoded a, a variable such that you have reversed the order of things. You think that you know your intervention group is coded as a one, but they're actually coded as a zero. So you get an error interpretation. Or, you know, you have some kind of a coding error that leads you to throw out some data. You know, you get missing values for variables that really shouldn't be missing. All kinds of things that can go wrong. And so the idea of of code review is that you would set up a system whereby a second person would review all the code that you've written to look for these kinds of errors and to make sure that they you know, they they are rooted out and prevented. There have been some sort of famous examples, and I think we actually talked about one on this, this podcast of cases where a coding error led to the retraction of a paper, but not only the retraction of a paper, but it was the foundation on which her research portfolio had been built. And so, and she had obtained Ouch. additional research funding for and so it led to a, a whole cascade of events, which we were very laudatory in her willingness to to fess up to the particular issue. But it, you know, co- things like that can obviously be avoided, or at least the chances of them reduced, if you have systems in place to review code. So, uh, Jess, let me start with you and just get your take on this particular idea. Is code review something that you have built into your 
your research? And if not, do you think this is something that is worth implementing? I think it's really important, especially, you know, I think especially on research teams, and I'm on a number of teams like this, where, you know, you have your, there's analysis that is being done, there's data that's being collected, there's analysis and code that's being run and generated, and maybe you don't have a statistician on the team, or you don't have a statistical team. What I liked about this paper is that they provided options depending on the size of your research team. For example, like if you were doing a big clinical trial and you had a statistical team, you know, you can have, you'd have one analyst do a very, you know, kind of put together a very annotated log as to how they, how they downloaded the data, how they coded the data, you know, including the data dictionary, and then kind of like a line by line code with annotation, for example, that then could be fully reviewed by another statistician. I think the sort of work that I do lends itself much better to their second approach, where you're in a much smaller research team, for example, and then you have one person who might not be a biostatistician who's basically leading the analysis, either they're an epidemiologist or they're in some related field, and then they work, they can show their work to the team, they can present their work to one other person kind of in an iterative way, so they can say this is, you know, in the, with the idea that you can catch mistakes as you're kind of almost like you're working with a partner, someone who, you know, in a collegial way. Also, I think it can reduce kind of some hostility as people, you know, try to, you know, either find mistakes or are looking for them as they rightfully should in the context of a research group. So what I kind of liked is that they said there's no one size fits all for every research group, but there's different options as the way you can improve your code and make sure that your analysis is accurate on the basis of who's, you know, who's in the mix for your group. Yeah. I, Chris, is this something that you do with your your research team? Well, yes and no. It, it, we absolutely, we absolutely should be, you know. And, I, and a recent example is kind of a, is kind of emblematic of that. We, you know, we've been doing this this work on RSV mortality in infants for a number of years. And one of the things we looked at was was the presence or absence of sort of canonical risk factors for RSV deaths based on what we know from the United States or you know other high income countries. And one of the the most common and understandable risk factors for dying of respiratory syncytial virus is if the if the baby has got some sort of congenital heart disease at baseline, you know, like a ventricular septal defect or something like that, which would create hypoxemia. And then when you have, you know, superimposed this respiratory virus on it, that's a that's a terrible combination mm. and the babies often die. So we're running through this this analysis and I noticed that the the, the relative risk was strongly protective of against RSV mortality if the child had congenital heart disease. And and you're thinking, well that 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 can't possibly be true. I mean you could think that you know, miscoding and misclassification might lead to a null result, but I cannot possibly believe that we have found something that contradicts everything that everyone else has learned before. Mm -hmm. And so I, 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 you know, I queried the analyst and she's like, oh, sorry, you know, I coded it as a zero and a, or a one or some, one of those basic mistakes where you just flipped the, the, you know, the relationship of the, of the risk. And then as soon as she corrected that is, you know, we're back to normal. But, you know, that made me very anxious in a way because, you know, here, here's an example where we know what the correct answer has to be, right? And so it's an easy error to spot when you see that the world is suddenly like your, your SAS program says the world is flat, you know, it's not right. So you've got to find the bug. And, and so we did. But what about all the other times when you don't know what the answer is? And so you don't have like an empirical ground truth to compare against, then you're really in dangerous territory, it seems. And so I, I feel like, you know, obviously this is something we ought to do. 
The, the question, though, is, is sort of operationalizing that. And I can see several challenges to that. One is that we, we often are short-staffed and we don't have a lot of statisticians or data managers on our team. So it's unclear who would do this, this checking. And the second challenge I, I see is, you know, we, we've been working with a, um, a really talented data scientist through our collaboration at the University of Georgia. And this guy we're working with is, is, is you know, does really meticulous big data analysis. Mm-hmm. And the programs that he writes and the analysis he he does are kind of beyond my comprehension. Mm-hmm. So they are so complicated that I, I really sort of scratched my head to wonder, how would another right. statistician do this? You know, particularly if you're waiting until the time of publication to sort of like review the entire thing, you'd really have to sort of like live in the mind of our postdoc to understand all the logic and the assumptions that were built into this model, you know, to and then to do the coding to achieve that. So it's like this it's, it's sort of two levels of complexity. It's not just understanding the code, but it's understanding what the, the coder was trying to do, which may be very hard. So, I mean, I think this is a great idea, but but I, I, I wonder, you know, is this going to fall into the ever-expanding, you know, bucket of un, unfunded mandates that, that put further burdens on researchers? Even though it is the right thing to do, I just like wonder about operationalizing it and how this is going to happen. And the final thing I will mention is that when we submitted this manuscript, you know, through this collaboration with this this postdoc to the journal eLife, they requested the codes, and I had not seen that from a from a journal before. But they are obviously thinking about this issue, you know, that was raised in this in this paper, and have now, you know, put it in into the you know the the, the framework of open transparency. Yeah, this is becoming more common, and I suspect it will become even more common over time that that journals are going to start requesting the data and the code because there've been as you say some examples of cases where there wasn't the there was some kind of an error found and it was sort of it was too late i agree with you chris that there are there are some big challenges to this one thing though i would say in response to what you're saying is commenting in code is really important for documenting what the person is trying to do so that there isn't just code, but there's a record of of exactly what you're getting at, which is what the person is trying to do. I've been uh, involved in a number of trials in which we have done exactly this. We have had somebody check over the code before it went to publication, or we've had somebody you know, replicate parts of the analysis. I I think this is a good idea. I, I really think it's important. I accept all of the challenges that you both have raised, and I think that they are things that we have to sort out in order to make this more more of an everyday thing for everyone. But if you build this into your research program, then I think it gets easier. The one thing that I would distinguish, though, is I think there's a difference between code review and code replication. And I think often code review, code review has the potential to identify some problems, but not all of them, because I think it's easy to look at somebody's code and think, and you know, and to even run their code and to think it's doing something different than it, it actually is doing, such that until you actually try to do the same analysis yourself, you may not see some of the errors. And so I've also been in, involved in trials where we've had two separate people doing the coding in parallel and making sure we got to the same answers because we were worried about the complexity of the coding that was needed to be able to generate particular outcomes. And so, you know, again, that's going to add time, effort, and energy 
to your research program if you do that. But it, you know, ultimately it may pay off and give you more peace of mind and allow you to sleep at night. So I don't know what the the answers are, but I think taking on this challenge is the first step towards doing better. So hypothetically, what if, you know, the New England Journal of Medicine were to start requiring a, a code verification step in their admissions process? And that, you know, that, you, you know, you're like me and you're, you know, tr- trying to hold your teams together and you barely have enough money to do the things that you told the NIH you're going to do. And now the journal says you got to find a second coder to double check you. It's like, how do you do that? Like, where do you find the money and the time to do this thing for them? It just, it, it, it that really worries me. It made me wonder if this is a role for crowdsourcing. <laughs> like if there could be some site where it could be like, here, you know, people who like to do this for fun, here's some data. Here's, you know, this is the analysis that we're trying to get at because, I, I agree with you. I think the teams that I work with, I think there's multiple levels often. I think there's the, the comprehension level where the, some of the analyses are very complicated and there isn't more than one person in the team who really understands what's going on. And so you'd have to find, and there'd have to be money for that person. You know, you'd have to find someone who can, who can understand and potentially re- you know, understand at minimum and then optimally maybe replicate elements of that code using their own style because everyone has a, a different style in terms of how they can get from A to B, especially in the early stages of an, of an analysis. So there's that comprehension issue as well. Um, plus there's the issue that as the PI, you're responsible at the end of the day mm-hmm. for the quality of the project. And and so it's I think it's important for, you know, and there's been very p- prominent stories of, you know, we see them all the time about PIs who are held responsible for retractions of articles that were either where the error was done intentionally or where it was, you know, a quality control and it was unintentional, but it changed the, you know, it changed the findings. It changed the kind of the fundamental theme of their research. Yep. So it obviously is really is really important, but I wonder if there's like a role for statistical crowdsourcing among students or among people who who have time and maybe they can get paid or maybe, you know, maybe there'd be some kind of hourly rate or something like that. It's hard if your research has a lot of proprietary elements maybe that you don't want to reveal over like a GitHub sort of format, but but maybe there's a way to engage the community more in this sort of process upfront rather than kind of leave it until it's until people have the data and then start to do it themselves and find all the errors. I I had a, an idea for a, another maybe pragmatic application of this idea, which is to spot fraud. You know, you can sort of think about some of these high profile fraud cases in, 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 you know, famous journals, if they had provided the code and they'd provided the data sets and you ran these, you know, you ran the code and you ran the data sets using the same software that they did and you can come up with the answer that they revealed, then they, you know, the authors would have a lot of explaining to do. And, and it, I mean, I know one could in theory write fraudulent code, but that would be very, very difficult to do to like generate all of the, you know, the P values and the conference intervals and the effect sizes and, you know, in your, you know, your results tables. It would be really hard to create a program that would replicate that, that looked anything like a legitimate code program. It wasn't just say like print the following data, you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that fraudulent code is often either completely just made up or it is generated from a statistical model that actually produces 
the data the way that you want it. And therefore, you can then write legitimate code that would, you know, then you do the a legitimate analysis that actually leads you to the thing. So you could rep, you know, you, you could fake that, but obviously the first one you couldn't. So it's, you know, it's an interesting idea. I... I, you know, I think there's a lot of a lot of merit here, and I do think that this is something that we need to pay more attention to. Yeah. Okay. Well, with that, then let's move on to our final segment, which is our amazing and amusing. Jess, you wanna you wanna go first this time? Sure. I was. I always think of a, a lighter topic for this sort of segment um, after we've been talking about malnutrition and fraud and research. Mm-hmm. So here's this is a paper that was published in the journal ACS Omega. It's a physics project, and this this one just came out. Let's see, March thirty first, twenty twenty one. How many bubbles are in a glass of beer? And so mm. these researchers, which I thought Ooh. was kind of fun, they, they 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 said the question. So you have a you know a pint of beer, a glass of beer that's poured, and there's a frothy section at the top. And they said, let's quantify the number of bubbles in the frothy part of the beer. I think there was a curiosity element, just like why why not? Let's let's do this. I think there was also an element where they were looking to see if it could be potentially correlated with taste. I think they were saying that it was correlated with taste, and so beer producers might want to have more bubbles at the surface of the beer than fewer bubbles, maybe for appearance or something. So so they found all sorts of interesting things as they were doing this study to try to quantify the number of bubbles on top of the beer. They were finding that certain glasses have varied, you know, which kind of makes sense by the, the style of the glass or if there's like little imperfections in the, the rim where bubbles can, I guess, kind of filter in there. They also compared wine to uh, champagne to beer mm-hmm. to see, you know, which had more bubbles at different times, kind of after the pour. So this is research that's very different from what we do. But it's important. But it's important research. Anyway, they found that it was over 2 million bubbles they could, they were estimating within a glass of beer. So I thought that was kind of, that was kind of interesting, a little different, you know, and I I think about this research also because my husband is a physicist and does work with bubbles, different sorts of, you know, and it's just very different from what we do with like people, you know, diseases and disease states and statistical models. Like he, he spends a lot of time making bubbles out of nanoparticles and then seeing what he can shoot through it. Oh, that sounds fun. I think, I think it's fun. I, you know, he thinks it's fun, but very different. But so this, you know, bubble research. Something to keep on your radar. Did they say anything about what the optimal number of bubbles was in this article? I don't, I don't think so. Mm. I don't think so. But they did. They they did make some notes in the beginning, kind of, you know, hypothesizing that how maybe the the bubble ratio to to liquid might have changed over time because beer is such an ancient drink. So mm-hmm. you know, the idea yep. that they're assuming that there's the fermentation process. You know, there's a certain standard number of bubbles, and then there's more bubbles now than there used to be. So I don't know. Unusual, yeah. unusual, and interesting. Important research. Important We're finally research. getting to the really important Especially questions. Especially during the pandemic, you yep. know what's 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 in your what's in your beer. Absolutely, Chris. What do you got for us? Well, it's sort of a funny coincidence, but I'm I'm also going to kind of talk about bubbles, Ooh. but from a different, very different perspective. So I I uh, you know I live in a big household. I've got you know we've got five kids and and. Uh, two dogs and a cat, they don't really matter in terms of the bubbles. But 
whenever I go into the downstairs shower, which is shared by uh, lots of other people, and it has one of those, you know, those uh, rainforest things, so everybody likes to use it because it feels really nice. There are like five different shampoos and five different <laughs> conditioners. Mm -hmm. yep. And, and um, you know, because you're sort of curious this. and you like being in the bath, you know, you you know, you know tend to use each one of them, right? Sort of, <laughs> like all <laughs> you know, at the same shower? All, or like all you in do. the same shower. So you get like 10 <laughs> bottles and you're like, okay, let's try them all, you know? And so you kind of go through them. And um, and there's, you know, having been doing this now for, for years, um, <laughs> I, I've started to become very observant about the, the characteristics of different shampoos and conditioners in the downstairs shower. And what and out of this has arisen a number of sort of observations and a, and, a, and one one huge mystery. And I'll start with the mystery and then go to the observations next. But the mystery is that my uh, my son likes to use Old Spice body wash, and it comes out in from this big pump jar in this deep cobalt blue gel, right? And so my question is, how do you, and I, I couldn't find the answer, so I'm just going to lead to that, but how is it that you can have shampoo that is bright blue that does not turn your hair blue? Mm, good question. How does it not stain you? How does it not stain your skin, your hands, or if you have blonde hair or white hair, why does your hair not come out blue? And so I tried to Google this and understand, and all I got was websites to talk about shampoos to keep your hair blue if you have dyed your hair blue already. <laughs> Mm -hmm. which is not what we're talking about here, which is like, why don't the other ones stain your hair blue? And I don't have an answer, but if someone can, you know, research this and get back to me, I would love to know. So I'm going to go to my observation next, which is one of the other things that I like about all these different hair products is that they smell different. Mm -hmm. You know, and if you sort of like lather up your head and then you cup your hands over your over your mouth and nose and inhale, you get all of these beautiful fragrances that come out of the lather. And and you know, after a while I start to sort of really think and pay attention and sort of like, what am I smelling here? And and you know, clearly there is an enormous amount of thought that goes into the sense of 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 hair products, right? And and so I Googled this too. And of course, there is an, an enormous science, an industrial science about the, the science of smells. And it, it, you know, it's it's interesting because if you if you play this experiment where you, you know, you lather your head and you cup your cup it over your nose and so and then you inhale, you you detect a certain set of tones like sandalwood or banana or papaya seems to be a very common one, or cinnamon or mint. These are like the ones that I I, I think are very common in, in shampoo. But if you keep doing this over and over and over with the same shampoo, you know, over time the smell definitely evolves. And and I think that what you're what you're detecting is the different solubility of the different oils that they put into the shampoo, and they're eluding from the shampoo from the bubble matrix at different speeds. <laughs> and so at the beginning it smells very minty, but you know, you do this five times in a row, and after a while it starts to smell like cinnamon. It's not that you've accustomed to the mint. I think that actually you are starting to smell. Here comes the cinnamon curve coming out. Out of the out of the shampoo, you know, it's really interesting. And so I, I I went on the web and learned, you know, pulled a couple papers and learned that you know there are, there are a number of, of smells that are particularly popular. And I had sort of a list here somewhere, but it doesn't really matter. But there, you know, it's like patchouli and cloves and wintergreen and peppermints and papaya and passion fruit and, you know, and on and on. Actually, there's hundreds of, of odors that have been concentrated in different oils that are used in the, in, the, in the hair product industry. And so I just would like to encourage everybody to pay more attention to this. It's really fascinating. <laughs> and if you have five different shampoos, you can do them all one after, after another, and then you will have the added of being, of being particularly clean at the end.
I have not heard of anyone thinking so deeply about shampoo smells in our field in a long time. <laughs> but it does, it did remind me that um, when I was just out of college, I had a friend who worked for a company that makes things like shampoos and, and deodorants and things like that. And she was telling us that there were, they would, the company would pay you if you wanted to to come in and test the products. And the there were two jobs. So basically the idea is you, you could come in and you could try on the deodorant and then you'd have to sit in a really hot room for a period <laughs> of time and see if this deodorant worked. And there were two jobs. <laughs> there were two jobs, one which paid better than the other. The first job was you could be the person who wore the deodorant and sat in the hot room. And then the second job, which paid better, was you could be the person who had to smell the person <laughs> who sat in the hot room and decide whether or not the deodorant worked. It's like the code so, review, right? Yeah. So I love that. Remind, That's great. Reminds me of, um, I, I will now always think of you when I think of shampoo and deodorants. It's yeah, a big industry. Yeah, it's a big industry though. The scents, like in environmental health, it's a big industry in terms of the creation of these scents that go into consumer products. And then what can happen is if someone has an allergy to, it can be very difficult to figure out what component of this complex scent in Pantene is is giving the oh, person this allergy. Point. And so yeah, that's, that's um, so it's, true. It's a really it's a fascinating science. Because because that is one thing I am absolutely certain of is that almost none of these products are like a single smell. It's not like right. here's mints. There are these these blends of like four or five different things. And 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 you know, like I said, you notice this when you smell them repeatedly over time and you start to see different odors emerge sequentially. You realize that the characteristic and the composition of the thing is really complicated. Yep. And you also don't want it to be overpowering. You want all of them to be, you know, pleasant and soothing and refreshing and, you know, improve your wellness. Etc. Oh, do you absolutely. think you would notice, Chris? Would you do you think you would notice this if you were leaving the house more often, or is this something because we're this all home so much? This is definitely a COVID so phenomenon, <laughs> right? We're all home so much. We're just smelling in That's the right. shampoo, paying yeah. a lot of attention to things that are not yeah. that important uh, to me, but yeah. important to other people. Apparently, like you yeah. say, Jess, it's a it's a huge industry. Yep. All right. Well, let me end just then with a basically a thought, which is a, a piece based on a piece that was in uh, Nature, I believe. It was in Nature Biotechnology. And it was a comment piece. I think they were, they were, so they were actually commenting on another piece of research, but it was on the mRNA vaccines oh. that we're all you know, so focused on right now. And the title of the piece was mRNA Vaccines Take on Immune Tolerance. And it was basically commenting on this study that was done in which they had been able to use mRNA vaccine technology to in, in mice that had been genetically uh, altered to have autoimmune conditions. And they were able to use the mRNA technology to tamp down the immune response and actually prevent the, the autoimmune disease. So this would be a mm. case of sort of the the opposite of what the mRNA vaccines we're used to right now are doing, where they are being used to create a response to that, that the body would have. This is now trying to tamp down a response that the body would have. And it was, you know, it was pretty successful. Of course, this is a, a mouse study. So who knows whether or not this is going to translate into anything in humans. But I just thought it was a really interesting 
way that this technology may be able to be used. And it made me think of the way in which the the HIV research industry that the industry was, was developed or industry might not be the right word, but the, 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 the research that was developed around HIV, all of the, the money that was put into doing research on HIV led to lots of different discoveries that were relevant and helpful to lots of different diseases. And so you wonder whether or not this sort of the pressure that COVID research is putting on all of us may, you know, have benefits down the line in terms of other conditions that are, you know, either other infectious diseases or even non-infectious diseases. And, you know, wouldn't that be a really nice silver lining from the pandemic? So, you know, it's it's funny you say that, Matt, because I, you know, last episode, I, I think I talked about Catlin Carrico, uh, the research scientist who, who mm-hmm. studied the immunogenicity and the reactogenicity of mRNA. Yep. And, you know, she had originally begun her her investigation thing that this might be, you know, a, an attractive uh, strategy to use for for um, genetic diseases. And, and so even though that was her initial focus, it ended up as being like this sort of breakthrough technology for vaccines. And just last week, I was having a, a conversation with a, a a friend of mine who is um, heading up the uh, clinical trial for CureVax mRNA vaccine is a really fascinating guy who I used to work with at Novartis. But the, the the interesting thing about about his career is that he's gone and back and forth between vaccine development and orphan diseases. Mm. You know things like hunters hunters syndrome. You know where you're or you know various conditions where there's a you know there's some enzyme that's missing uh, and you you know you lead it develops some sort of chronic uh, multi organ diseases as a result and the the strategy for these companies has been to to synthesize these proteins and figure out how to deliver them as infusions, you know, or supplements in some way to reverse this process or arrest the process. And so he he is is now sitting with one foot on the orphan disease world, the other foot in the vaccine development world, where the technology has has arrived that actually unifies those two those two uh, lines of research. It's really it's sort of a, an amazing coincidence that we're seeing, you know, playing out in front of us. Really cool. Really cool. Well, that is the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at PopHealthyX, or you can tweet me at, at ProfMattFox, or Don at, at DTheo1, or Chris at ID.Gill, or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Assistant Dean of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you will download our next episode.